Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going very well with everybody else. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we have out there on the internet. Best way to do that is to follow me uh, on Twitter at, at Focus Compound, where I push out all of our content uh, pretty much daily. Uh, if you want to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005, go to focuscompound.com. And if you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, you can reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com. So in a podcast that we uploaded, I believe last week, recently, we talked about Peter Lynch, Jeff. And we had said that Peter Lynch had his own uh, two-minute drill thing where he would say, if you were going to recommend a stock to somebody, you should basically be able to monologue it to them within two minutes on why Peter should be interested in the company. And I actually have the exact thing right here. It says, before buying a stock, I like to be able to give a two-minute monologue that covers the reasons I'm interested in it, what has to happen for the company to succeed, and the pitfalls that stand in its path. So on today's podcast, I thought we haven't done a Snap Judgment episode in quite Mm -hmm. some time. Uh, And we'll do our own version of a two-minute drill. So I sent out a tweet basically telling people to um, send in some stocks with uh, why we should be interested in it. Of course, some people just put in some tickers, uh, without saying why we should be interested in it. So we could go to the ones that did. Um, and the first company is ATZ and his reason on why we should be interested in it. 44% gross margin. It's net cash buying back shares and large insider buys trading at 14 times 2024 free cash flow with normalized 10 to 15% sales growth rate, half the free cash flow multiple of Lulu with lots of white space. So ATZ is the ticker. We will punch that in to QuickFS. Uh, what is this company? Arteza, maybe? Something, yeah. Arteza, I don't know. Retail company. Go ahead. Okay. You familiar with this company? No. I was just trying to find the insider stuff, but. If it's Canadian listed, then I won't be able to find the insider things. So we'll believe that there's insider buying. We don't know. Um, uh, Together with its subsidiaries, designs and sells apparel and accessories for women in the United States and Canada. That makes sense yeah. to the Lululemon connection he made. It could be a wonderful stock. I can't evaluate it. What do I know about retail? What do I know about women's clothing stuff? I just... it's. Other people know more about this than I do, so it's really not one that we can do. And from a quantitative standpoint, looking at the numbers, anything like that, it's just hard to draw insights? Just automatic too hard pile for you or automatic I don't care pile for you? Um, It looks fairly normal in terms of what we'd expect there. And uh, the gross profits, like what he mentioned, um, which is about what you might expect. Um, SG&A is kind of high. Um Free cash flow generation isn't great, but it's if it's growing, that's not that surprising. Turns look normal. I mean, just looking in terms of that stuff, it it does look like a 
higher markup retailer or one that has significant like um, fixed costs. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it has department store type looking things. I mean, it's not a department store, but the if you just did gross margin EBIT turns cash flow generation, it looks a lot like when we talk about things that sell mainly clothing and stuff, but have high fixed costs. All right, we could go on to the next one. Let's see. It says, I know it probably isn't your style of investment, but I think GIFI is worth a look. Companies on the cusp of completing a multi-year turnaround has sold off a very unprofitable division and is returning to profitability and positive free cash flow. GIFI, GIFI, Gulf Island Fabrication. Yeah. Let's see. Together with subsidiaries, operates as a fabricator of steel structures and modules in the United States. Very interesting. I've never heard of this company. Market cap fifty-three million. Enterprise value fourteen million. Do you like situations where a company is closing an unprofitable division? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something that wouldn't technically show up in the financials until it shows up, right? Yeah, so you can see the return on invested capital here is very interesting. It used to be positive, and now it's significantly negative. Um, can you check the most recent balance sheet, though? Uh, oh, that's interesting, too, the headquarters. But we'll, Where is we'll, it we'll at? Go back to that. The Woodlands, which is a bit... Ah, Woodlands, Texas? Yeah, which is a bit... I mean, that matches the Gulf Island thing, but this is a pretty small company. I don't know if that's... That's where General nice Ackman... Thing. General Ackman has business with Howard Hughes Corp. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe they could cut down on their uh, headquarters expense or something. But um, <laughs> it's a little uh, fancy for what we have described here. But maybe there's parts of the woodlands that aren't as nice. Um, so let's see. Uh, oh, so they have a lot of cash. So that's why the EV is working out that way. Do you have that? So what is our? Um, well, we just talked about net assets. Let's look first at current assets. Okay. Okay. Current, are assets, current assets are 90, 91 million. Okay, and we have total liabilities of thirty-two million, so fifty-nine million. Yeah, and what's the, the market difference between cap that? And we said the market cap is fifty-three million, so it's a net net. Look at that. Yeah, so I would have to check how it's calculating that and everything, because that would surprise me that we'd inadvertently find a net net in the things pitched to us, but it's possible. But this is also one that has high PP and E, right? Like as compared to what a net net normally has or not. Let's say it's meaningful, right? Yeah, so PP&E is $29 million. Yeah, so that's interesting. So this is interesting on an asset basis. Has cash, has short-term investments, a bunch in accounts receivable. Yeah, and you wonder what those receivables are, who they're with. Um, can we look at the business description? Sure. It looks super cyclical, right? This looks like, um, just because I have Gulf Coast stuff on the mind, you know, it reminds me of like um, Conrad or something, which is a shipbuilding thing in the Gulf which um, had really nice returns for 10 years or so in the 2000s and then lost money for like 10 years after that, you know? Mm-hmm. Also kind of cheap on an asset basis and stuff. Um, so Yeah, I mean, look at the here? stock chart too when you talk about like cyclicality. Mm-hmm. It's gone crazy. That's the idea times. of net nets though. You uh-huh. buy them on an asset basis and then you sell them to someone who's valuing them on an earnings basis, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So let's okay, read so the we- description, yeah. Sure. Uh, the company fabricates modules, skids, and piping systems for onshore refining, petrochemical, liquefied natural gas, which is kind of what I was thinking, Gulf Island, LG, and what uh, industrial and offshore yeah. facilities. Yeah. 
And the reason why, I mean, Conrad Industries does other things too, but their big thing was making ships for the Gulf. Uh, there, there's U.S. laws that would make it so that you kind of have to do that for things that are only use are only staying in U.S. waters and going between places in the U.S. Um, they're usually going to be built in the U.S. crude in the U.S. whatever because there's there's anti um, there's protectionist laws on the books for the last hundred years. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, that could be very possibly cyclical because of that. And if there's going to be any rebound in that, which there could be um, one day, uh, then then it could do really well. So, um, No debt either. No short-term it, debt, no long-term so debt. So that's another thing. We should look at like the 10 years and stuff. We don't do this enough where we kind of look at the history of what happened with the company and whatever. Um, like... Uh, because when we talk about the Japanese companies, I think we overlooked that too. Um, a lot of times people are like, oh, they're so conservative and whatever. They weren't conservative in 1990. It was all debt, no cash and stuff. And then 2010, it was all cash and no debt. So over 20 years, they changed their position from one thing to the other. But when you look at most of those companies, it's not like they did the same thing their whole history. So let's start with total assets. That gives us an idea. That's the cleanest measure of like the overall size of the balance sheet. Is this company a lot bigger or a lot smaller over the last 10 years or the same? A lot smaller. So in 2012, total assets were 403 million. Where we stand today, at least as of end of 2022, 135 million. If I pull up a quarterly, uh, it's at 136 million today. Yeah. So using quantitative type stuff, right? What would someone want to see? Um, if they didn't know more about this business and stuff, I think you want like a, a F score, right? The Piotrowski score, right? Going in a positive direction, five or higher, or something someone would like, and some stock movement in the right direction, or some earnings movement in the right direction. If there's more information about the company, a sign that things are getting better. Absent the things getting better, looks good, right? If we could prove that things are getting better, and we could get in on it with some business momentum, I don't care about the stock price momentum stuff, but I do care about the business momentum is going in the right direction, um, which people can fool themselves about like many, many times over a decade where things don't go in the right way. They'll, every few years, they'll think it's it's going to get better. So green shoots, it's always, you know, green shoots and clouds are clearing and stuff. Um, so you have to be careful about that. But uh, yeah, it looks interesting if it can get better. But of course, if it could always get worse, then it's, it's not interesting. The, the reason why is if it's not something wrong with the business and its competitive position and stuff, but just like a complete lack of demand, that's when it's interesting. Especially if you're bullish on oil prices, right? Yeah. Well, there's some people who are really bullish on offshore and stuff. Um, I, I don't know. We were talking about that. Uh, we were talking off the podcast about a different energy thing, not oil. Um, and I was saying the same sort of things, which is, you know, people get really bullish on the supply-demand thing, but they get really bullish, which will make you the big money on the really marginal thing, right? So, like, if it turns out, we're just in balance with what we have now and what we're planning to do. It's not going to be a lot of offshore around the world and stuff. If it turns out you need a bit more, then that's going to be huge. Cause it's going to go from nothing to some huge number. And there's all sorts of companies that can make money on that, whether they're, you know, helicopter things, flying people over there, things, oil services, things doing that. Um, there's some ships that were at, you know, cheap on a net asset value basis, not that long ago that people could buy and that they're hoping for. But on the other hand, it's the first things that you get rid of, you know, like, um, they're, they're still going to be taking oil out of West Texas and stuff. Um, regardless of whether supply and demand situation changes by a pretty big amount, 
but they're not going to be offshore and stuff unless um unless things turn out to be tighter than what they were in the last few years so um yeah it's pretty interesting though isn't that that this company though this is very interesting yeah um but you could see why people would be not that excited about it what what is the like let's say 10 year or something stock return can you give me something like that well you got five years five years is fine we can do five so five years ago, it was at $8.25, high of, call it, close to 10 and now we're at $3.26. And going back, like that 8 was already down a big amount from five years prior to that probably or something. So, so yeah, you've probably exhausted people over time. It's gone somewhat sideways, I guess, for several years now, but it had several big drops over the last 10 or years or so. Probably 10 years because what the peak in this stuff was, yeah. Um, I mean, if this is related to Gulf Coast stuff, I guess the peak would have been around the time of uh, what Deepwater Horizon or whatever. Um, the the yeah BP disaster. So, um, because that's when they stopped doing the lease, allowing leases and stuff. Um, the federal government stopped all of that stuff at that time, I think. So, I would guess that would be around the time if you want to kind of set a date on these kinds of stocks where things start might might turn around from a industry level so yeah i mean if it gets better yeah the price looks interesting and if i don't know anything about the company but you know if it's a industry issue not a company issue then it's really interesting um i would we were talking about the money mind right money sense to hunt out opportunities and stuff i'm not going to say recommend this stock but i am going to say recommend it as a hunt uh down the situation learn more about it whatever this would set off a radar ping yeah yeah, I was going to say, I'm definitely going to take a deeper look when we get off the podcast. For sure. Cool. Well, hey, look at that. Glad we did this pod. Um, next stock, Dollar General again, Jeff. So we've talked mm-hmm. a little bit about Dollar General recently. A lot of yeah. people like it. Uh, let's see. Dollar General, largest rural retailer, as you know, focused mm-hmm. on being lowest cost operator. Room for growth. Yeah. Uh, he puts in the USA, Mexico, and international over the long term. Short-term headwinds, disclosure, long. Okay. So a few things, because we talked about Dollar General and I was somewhat harsh on it. Um, One, it is true Dollar General is a low-cost company. It's not a low-price company. Its prices are actually higher than the things that people claim it competes with. It's claimed that Dollar General competes with Walmart. I do not believe Dollar General competes with the Walmart to the same extent people think. I think for stock market investment, it does. That we as investors say, oh, I want to be in on this rural, um, lower to medium income, whatever uh, thing. Dollar General is where you go for convenience, right? If you look at what a Dollar General looks like and how it's set up and go in there and shop there, um, in terms of the staffing levels, the way the aisles are handled, the way that the um, checkout is handled, whatever, it is very suboptimal for a large basket size however it's great for coming in getting stuff coming out right what does dollar general probably sell a lot of um it's probably selling plenty of energy drinks and things right someone has to get the energy drink and because they or someone in their household is addicted and they need it now and the dollar general is three minutes away right so it's probably across from a gas station in an o'reilly or something right like we said um so they need something dollar general is the first place that you can go close by it's like a convenience store it's i think competing more 
for the trip sometimes with something like a, uh, a the local gas station thing. Um, and then they sell you other stuff while you're there, right? So you can buy lots of other stuff while you're there. But I don't think you're planning your twice-weekly trip the way that you would be to a supermarket or a Walmart or whatever that you're going to all the time to buy your cases of Coke. Um, for that reason, Dollar General's average co- uh, average pricing is not that low on a um, by-volume basis, right? It, a per ounce of Coke sold there or something, it's not going to be that good versus Walmart, Costco, supermarkets, whatever. Um, Dollar General has some issues, which may be short-term. Um, so two things. One, it boomed during the pandemic, and now that's coming back down. But two, there are signs of stuff, and they've addressed this in their most recently earnings call, but that I wanted to bring up. Because uh, I think they say one thing about it, and, and the media and stuff interprets it one way, and I actually think it may be signs of something else. And, and they've actually given hints, if you really pay attention to what they're saying, I think, about underlying issues. They invest in labor, right? And people said we invest in labor and whatever, that they have to pay more for these people because they're underpaid and they can't hold on to them and stuff. Like I read an article where they said they can't hold on to them because Walmart probably pays them more. I don't think people would leave Dollar General for Walmart because Walmart pays more. I know a bunch of people who've ran Dollar Generals and Walmarts both. Um, I think they would leave because they don't have support. So it's a lot easier to run a Walmart than it is to run a Dollar General. It's a And that's not even what you're competing for. You're competing for a department in Walmart as the most likely versus a Dollar General. There's a lot more Dollar General stores and everything. It's not that the head of a Dollar General thing is going to be the head of Walmart. Um, so that also could explain issues with shrink. Um, a lot of retailers are having shrink issues and they're saying that this is theft stuff and right, we're saying well, this is societal things and whatever. But if there's what is happening or was happening for the last two years, high inventory levels and poorly managed inventory levels, like I said with Walmart, this was really noticeable in my area, um, combined with staffing issues, staff leaving a lot, high quit rates, new staff members coming in, new people who haven't been vetted at lots of different places, um, there's just problems. So they're not saying it, but a lot of these companies probably are not doing the same amount of inventory, something you count at one point, count at another point, and then you say, here's how much we lost and stuff. Embedded in that is a bunch of stuff of how your employees are stealing from you and stuff that you don't know. In addition to stuff that you didn't know that you didn't actually get what you said you were supposed to do, that there were mistakes and all sorts of things. It's Shrink is like a errors uh, account that we put all the stuff that went wrong and we don't know what it is. We, we, we're missing inventory that we thought we should have had. And lots of stuff could have happened to that inventory. Um, I think the investment in labor is related to that. They need to get inventory down and they need to spend more on labor because I think they're realizing that they're having problems related to that. Um, and I think it probably has more to do with workers feeling supported and safe and stuff like that than it just has to do with outright how much you pay them and morale issues and other stuff is probably showing up in, in the shrink that they're having, um, as it is with other companies. Um, when we say shrink stuff, it's we don't even know that that inventory ever necessarily really exists in the way that they think it did. 
you know, two people from a supplier and the company getting the delivery and everything could both have participated in something which causes them to think that there's shrink when there never really was any shrink. Um, people can realize that there's all this inventory sitting around that no one's moving to the places that it should be. That's what happened at Walmart. So Walmart had a system where they're supposed to put inventory someplace and they're supposed to take it from there to put it on the shelves and stuff. It piled up in high amounts with being backed up and then being backed up just on trucks and things by me when we talked about how bad it was and then it got better. When that was happening, someone just realizes they it's going to be a long time before this inventory ever gets there. There's lots of it. We can sell it and stuff. And obviously the big change is online. Now you can sell this stuff through like Amazon and whatever sites that probably through third-party sellers and stuff don't really know where the inventory is coming from. So things that can get taken can go through that. So I think just generally having way too much inventory that you're not moving and everything um, combined with labor issues is contributing to things like shrink and stuff. So it's not, I'm not as convinced as other people that there's a thousand different random things happening that are bad with Dollar General. You know, people say like, oh, well, they missed on this and this and this. And so it's bad luck that that happened. I think that it is actually related to too much of a high volume with too little ability to handle it. Um, their stores were not equipped to handle this kind of rush that happened and it's causing problems with employee issues. It's causing problems with shrink and stuff. So it's, it's labor, it's inventory, it's system stuff at the actual stores. I'm sure that their it stuff is great. I see their, uh, trucking stuff that they own themselves and everything. And I'm very impressed by what it does all around, um, in places where no one else has that. Uh, but the investment at the store level is, is low and looks overstretched and like it, it's got problems. Um, and everyone looked that way to some extent during COVID, but I think I wouldn't be surprised if you had higher investment levels in the individual stores from higher wages, from other things that increase labor costs and from different ways of handling their inventory and everything else. They probably need to put more into the store level stuff. Um, and the, you know, but it has a great long-term record and the stock is sort of cheap. It has debt and stuff, so it's not crazy cheap. It's very cheap versus other retailers and retailers with worth worse um, records than they have. So on like a comparable basis, it's it's better. But I do want to caution a little bit. This company leases locations and has debt, so it's not as cheap as it looks if things start to go the wrong way. Um, it's what it's really cheap on is comp to its own past record and comp to other retailers of its similar size and stuff in the stock market. So, but yeah, it has a model that has more growth potential and stuff than others. So let's say, would this be a situation where if you owned it, you probably wouldn't sell it, but if you did not own it, you would not purchase it today. Would you purchase it today? How would you th be thinking about it? Well, so I read the transcripts and I have a little bit, I have a mixed feeling on it from that perspective. I feel that management probably gets it, but doesn't want to communicate what the issues are too openly in public. So I don't think they're in denial. There's some evidence of denial in the transcripts and stuff. They talk a lot about some things that worry me, which is like, we have this system and it works and we get back to this and it will work. And, you know, sort of like we execute better than other people. You never want to hear a company say things like that. Um, so even though they're, it's true in their case. Um, so that worries me a little bit. I, th 
I think they're much more the most recent results and transcript and stuff. I feel like they were much more realistic about what's happening. Um, but I don't know. Like, I, if we met Dollar General Manager and stuff, I would like to know how often they're actually in the stores and stuff. And um, I feel there may have been too much focus on on headquarters things, technology things, um, stuff like that. And um, maybe because it, it works for them and it's a good thing for them to do. And because it uh, Wall Street gets it and they can explain ways in which they can improve that. Um, and maybe not enough focus on certain things about the stores that was happening. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, I talked about that a little bit. I, I, you know, let's see how many dollar generals I've been to sample. I mean, it's, it's a very anecdotal what there's 20,000 of them or something. So it's a small number in a couple States, but for instance, there's evidence I think of employees not complying with what management thinks they're doing just because they want to get through the day and some things that management is doing is too difficult for them to pull off with the amount that they have. So like I said, I think there I've been in stores where they just are saying something's not working. It's working, but they're just saying it because it's causing problems, even to the point of things that maybe help them with theft or whatever. They just decide, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, so they, it's probably less controlled than they want it to be. In some cases, I just think there's heavy. I think the store managers are overburdened um, and are reacting in ways that that would suggest there needs to be intervention from headquarters on it, Um, which they probably are doing and stuff. They're just not talking as much about it. And it probably explains when they're talking about the labor stuff. That's what they really mean and everything. Um, But. Yeah, I just saw evidence of a hmm, not even disgruntled workforce exactly, but uh, management that was uh, probably uh, likely to act um, quickly and erratically in response to the fact that they feel like they don't have control. And uh, I, I just think they probably want to spend more time in their stores and stuff and get a feel for that. The company's always had a long history of being, you know, less staffed and everything than than other and less expensive at the store level than others, which is great. Um, but I think in most recent years, basically COVID on, I think that's it's possibly deteriorated, and that can be a leading indicator if you're seeing deterioration there that will show up only later in the. And the results. And so I'm just, I would be worried about that. Um, but like I said, I think there was a pivot in how management talked about it and stuff that isn't totally unrealistic. It's not like they're not handling and stuff, but they're trying to put on a good face for wall street and stuff. So I don't know how much of that is what they really think and how much is putting on a good show for wall street while also being honest and serious about how they're taking the challenges. But I think there's real challenges to their, their execution in terms of probably, um, store level this stuff um having to do with with uh how the stores run and um that's basically what i see and so i don't know i would watch that i think that other you know that if that works out then really positive things can happen um and companies can change that so it's not impossible at all um but you know um it can be a leading indicator though of like bad things to come if they're in denial about it, which I don't think they're totally in denial. I think it's half and half. Got it. Cool. 
Um, next one, Ally Financial. Uh, he says, getting hammered over banking narrative, plus used car prices dipping. But it's set up for strong earnings growth this decade. Great capital returns program. We'll love to hear your guys' take on the company. Ally Financial. Yeah, this is an interesting one. It's owned by Berkshire. Uh, almost certainly not Buffett, though. But it is probably a big position. Um, it is pretty attractive by most measures. What do you do? You want to talk about like price to book and price to earnings? Sure. So currently trading at seven times earnings. Price to book zero point six. Return on equity is eight point five. Uh, thing that stands out to me, Jeff, is the loan to deposits and how yeah. much they've declined uh, the, since two thousand thirteen. Okay. Yeah. So what they've done is they've built a deposit base. Now, it's not necessarily a great deposit base and stuff because this is an online bank, essentially. It's not a bad deposit base for an online bank. It's good. But online is not, you know, online only is not great. There's a couple companies that do it, maybe three or so that do it successfully. But um, where they had no base for that before, because this is obviously um, coming out of the... Uh, I guess was well, GM, but they combined it with something else, right? As part of it with the private, there was like a two-step process. So it may have been combined with a different one, but it's JMAC. But I, I remember there was something that was combined with two as part of that. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, I think it'll tell you that the predecessor thing was GMAC. Um, so whatever it was 10 years ago, actually it's a little more than 10 years now um, that happened. And then since then it should be getting better. Um, and it has been. They bought back a lot of stock, right? Do you have the year-by-year um, -year thing? Yep. So we could go to the income statement. Uh, shares outstanding in 2013 were 420 million, and they actually went up to a peak of 482 million in 2016. Uh, but we're at 319 million here today. Yeah. The and so it is. Um, what was it the? Uh, yeah. So. Berkshire owns, I was just checking this to say about a billion dollars worth of it or something. It's not a top uh, position. Um, yeah, they own 29 million shares, I think it says. Um, so, and then the other one is uh, that in addition to Berkshire owning it, I know that um, Punch Card, right, Norbert Liu um, owns it. And so it gets mentioned to me by people for that reason. Um, I mean, if you take the current book value of 0 0.6 and return equity of 8.5, mm -hmm. you could take 8.5 divided by 0. 0.6. I mean, that's a 14% return right there. Yeah. What has net interest margin been in recent years and what has the return on assets been? So in recent years, net interest margin, um, uh, 2022, 4.6, 2021, 4 2020, 3.3, 2019, 3.5, and return on assets has been about 1% probably on average. But we'll, I'll just read across from 2019 onwards. So 2019, 1, 2020, 0.6, 2021, 1.7, and 2022, 0.9. Okay. Um, it's very cheap. So what I was going to say is if we look here... Um, the thing that it's fairly easy to compare it to in um let's see uh yeah i i guess what i was going to say is the argument 
There's not much of a comparison, but Berkshire owns both of them. So uh, the argument is, do you own something like American Express or do you own something like Ally? So Ally's returns are worse, um, but it's a lot cheaper. Cheaper, right? way cheaper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's much cheaper, but the returns are much worse. Um, so the issue is you're doing something in terms of like what we talk about the net interest margin and then the loan losses and stuff on it. Um, that isn't that ridiculously different than net interest margin type stuff. I mean, I compare the two of them because it's all, I mean, American Express is also doing small business and stuff, but it's all, um, consumer lending that's backed by not having no branches, but having deposits and generating float and stuff through things. Um, so it's similar that way in terms of what could be the net interest margin. I wouldn't be shocked if they were pretty similar that way. Um, if you like things that aren't terribly mismatched and stuff in terms of duration, uh, then these also make sense. Cause mostly when people talk to us about bank stuff, the issue is going to be that we're gonna have to explore is like, you know, um, how much of this is in long-term type stuff. Like the banks we talked about that had problems with short-term liabilities and long-term assets. Um, I think it's interesting. And what's the market cap on it now? 8.6 billion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is very, very cheap. It's probably Todd that owns it. Financials. Yeah. It is very, very cheap on things like book and stuff, especially. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder what is it usually traded at, uh, from a book value perspective, we can go to key ratios, get an idea of it. It's kind of traded at this area. It looks like, however, their loans and deposits have really come down. So, yeah, you could um, argue maybe it's a safer company now. Yeah, well, leverage is a lot higher though. Um, they used to have quite low leverage, which is tr- it's not unusual for banks that if they have uh, weak deposit base type stuff, you see low leverage, and then if they have strong deposit base, then they can afford to have high leverage, um, or they thought they could until you know this year. Um, yeah, there's there's not a lot. I don't Return know what equity is be. better than the asset growth. You like to see that. You don't like to see the asset growth be higher than your return on equity. Yeah. Long-term return on assets is not good enough. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to invest in something that has a return on assets of 0.7% or something. Um, but I think more recently and what they're likely to be able to achieve in the future, which is all that matters, is better. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you don't hate it. I don't hate it. Um, I couldn't find any insider buys. This is interesting. It could just be that for some reason it's not collecting the the thing source that I checked isn't collecting information on insider stuff. I'd be interested in seeing that. We haven't talked about that because we don't like to talk about different banks and say this bank is a little shaky and whatever. But one thing that's interesting with them obviously is looking at which ones are actually buying lots of their are the insiders buying lots of the stock and stuff and which ones aren't um which ones are just token ones you know get everyone together on the day that all the deposits were flying out the door and all five of us buy a hundred thousand dollars worth or something or which ones were actually large amounts of people buying or people switching from they had been sellers to now they're buyers or something um so uh because there are a few 
banks that had a lot of faith and stuff when they talk about it in the transcripts, but you do notice that no one in the bank is buying any stock, even though it went in half and stuff. Um, and then there's others where it switched, where people had been net sellers for a long time, and then suddenly um, everyone's a buyer, and no one has sold since since March or whenever that stuff happened. So, um, yeah, I, I don't... Look, it, it's big, and you can get in and out of the stock, and it is... Um, I don't know of other things that are as cheap. Um, cheap in like just in terms of the central tendency of the last few years of earnings and stuff, right? So like it's not just that they're cheap versus this year's earnings. They're also pretty cheap versus last year's, but they're also fairly cheap versus like a five-year average or something, you know? Um, if we go back further than that, it's not good. The company was good. Things haven't been happening for the company for that long. But the last five years or so, if we say, okay, that's where we start. Um, yeah, it looks good. Uh, so it's hard for me to say anything negative about any of that. Um, it, I'm not sure what all the concerns are that people have about it, to be entirely honest. Now, I don't, without looking into it, we wouldn't know, but the things about the used car stuff and all that, Obviously, higher prices and stuff means that there's less volume that you can do and everything. But remember, with the stock's price to book and everything, any capital that they generate is at least as profitably. I mean, it might be more profitably put to buying back their own stock than it is to actually reinvesting in the business at this point. Or it's pretty similar or however you want to put it. But it's it's not a lot worse. So it hardly matters whether the business grows or not. I would say it doesn't matter. Um, what matters is whether it gets enough in terms of its returns and... Uh, if it's safe enough. Um, it is interesting, just looking at quick FS, what the heck these numbers mean. So loan loss reserves, right, to loans. It's gone up since COVID and they haven't reversed that, which is fine. But what was going on before then is one that I don't fully understand. What lending were they doing that they were had a reserve of 1% from 2014 to 2019? That doesn't sound right considering what the business they're in. 1% seems low. Yeah, 1% seems low. Um I mean, yeah, it, it does it, it definitely seems low. Uh the um for instance, to give you an idea of that, um let's see. Uh, I think it seemed low, but I don't know what they knew. Um, it's not, uh, yeah, it still seems low to me, but now it seems high. So I don't know what that's all about and what that meant back then. And it hardly matters, you know, but, um, that's also, tweak some things in the balance sheet and everything that we should keep in mind that if the reserves change for that much, which you could see, then it might make us think that they were less leveraged in the past and are more leveraged now than is really the case. Right. Cause it doesn't sound like a huge shift, but if we said that they, um, now they did bring loans down though. Let's see. Um, yeah. So if we do, if we just assume, let's see, that's, um, I mean, that affects book value by 20% or something, 
per share because let's see, it's one point eight, but then their loan. I mean, well, let's see, their loans are no, their loans were close to one hundred percent, and they're levered twelve times. Yeah, a one point eight percent increase in the loan loss reserve per loan on a company this size does affect the balance sheet in terms of things like book value and stuff by a huge amount. Um, it doesn't for some other companies where the loans are a lot lower, but anyway, so compared to most banks we've looked at that we talk about, their loans are still quite high compared to their deposits, right? And compared to their overall balance sheet. Um, it, it's something to look at and think about. Um, yeah. Uh, I think it's fine to look at it and stuff. I guess the only, I guess people would say Citigroup. I was trying to think of something that has similar metrics and probably Citigroup. Do you have Citigroup? Um, Citigroup's probably ch cheaper, no? What are we at here? Price to book? Oh, 0.4. Yeah, return equity, 7.1. Is Citigroup. So which is easier to understand? Probably Ally. So um, what are the loan loss reserves at Citi? And what did they do? They probably didn't do the same. Thing. Loan loss reserves, we have 2.6, 2.5, working backwards, 2.5, 3.7, They released 1. them, though. Yeah. So they went up to, th yeah, and then it came down, I guess, in line more with the other big banks, but only about halfway in line. Yeah. And you might sleep better now with all the stuff with the, everyone worrying about the security stuff, being in a bank with more loans. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, the, the loans aren't marked to market, but you're not worried about that. But the... um the bonds and stuff that people are worried about. So we haven't talked about this, but I was thinking about this okay. the other night. I was like, we sort of just skirted past the fact that like what four banks failed mm -hmm. at the beginning of this year. And it seems yeah. like so far there have been no ripple effects anywhere else. Is that too early to tell or are we out of the weeds here? I was thinking about that last night. It's like, People are so accustomed to just the speed of everything too. I mean, right. people move on quick and they're on to the next thing. It almost as if it didn't happen. Well, I think it was uh, Paulson, um, the treasury secretary back in the financial crisis who said, um, it was someone like that who said, you know, it's not so much dominoes, right? It's more like popcorn popping that the same thing is affecting all of them and, you know, this is happening. So if we're talking about dominoes, no, I think it's over. It's not a big deal. I didn't think it was that big a deal when it was happening in terms of who it affects and all the different counterparties and stuff. It wasn't like what happened with the investment banks. But there is, there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies. There's going to be a lot of companies that can't refinance things and that are going to refinance at much higher rates and everything in the next few years. And people are pretty relaxed about that right now, that fact. I mean, we have companies that I look at and say either that we're invested in or that we think about investing in and I say, well, you know, everyone says, isn't it great that they're out a few years in terms of the maturities and stuff, but they're eventually going to replace debt and it used to cost them like 2% and now it's going to cost them 7 yeah. Mm -hmm. So even when people go, oh, they don't have a lot of debt to EBITDA and stuff. Well, if they have one times, you know, your EBITDA is down by quite a bit. If they have three times, it's down by enough to worry you and everything. And deals just won't get done when you get to trying to say, okay, let's. So when you hit a wall in terms of the maturities and stuff, um, in terms of the interest that they're paying, it's not terrible each quarter. Um, but that's what people, I, people are. That's more the thing is people have been relaxed in the past that you don't have to worry about, oh, they have a maturity coming up next year or the year after or something. But now you would. 
especially if it's not a great time for your stock, right? You can't issue equity and stuff at that moment. It's not a good time for your industry or whatever. If you don't time it right, being able to say, I better go to, um, to replace this borrowing at an advantageous time in my industry becomes more important now than it did before. Um, I would be worried about doing it um, the way that you did before COVID uh, or during COVID actually too, um, with the exception of a few industries, right? Like cruise lines and stuff had, and Dave and Buster's, right? And a few of the others had like capital raises that were very difficult in terms of the pricing and stuff. But aside from a few industries that were literally shut down, it's um, people haven't adjusted to the new rates and everything. So, I mean, debt costs like what, you know, debt is not low cost versus equity now at all. In fact, I'm not sure if most companies wouldn't have a better weighted average cost of capital, really, if they thought about it with what their stock prices are, if they move more towards more equity and less debt at this moment, which is interesting and unusual. Um, so, uh, but like everybody pulling their money out and freaking out about it and all that stuff that people talked about, um, that certainly calmed down. It was an interesting period when we went through that because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's something people don't talk about, um, you know, uh, and it turns a lot of people off of investing in banks and everything. And, you know, I got I've, I still to this day get a lot of questions about banking things that is from that point on, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I was reading something with Jamie Dimon was commenting on more regulation coming to banking. And I think. He basically said the Fed should be a little bit more humble because they were telling everybody that they weren't going to raise rates as much as they did. So they were wrong. And then they did. And then, yeah, I mean, a lot of these banks that I guess were planning on what the Fed was guiding, you know, kind of caught themselves in trouble. The Fed under Bernanke and to some extent through to today believes in this concept from papers and things of forward guidance. I think forward guidance is a bad idea. But they think it's a good idea. The reason why I think forward guidance is a bad idea is that it, they like it because it makes their monetary policy more effective. In fact, I'm not sure how effective quantitative easing is except to the extent that it involves forward guidance. The belief is that you're not going to raise rates while you have this giant um, balance sheet like that and while you're guiding saying you won't do this. So it's like um, in Game of Chicken, you remove the steering wheel, right? then you know that the other person is going to have to swerve out of the way because you've proven that there's no way you're getting out of the way no matter what happens. That's what they did because we can't rate lower rates below zero or we didn't want to other places did. Um, Yeah. It's not effective. Basically there's, it doesn't make sense to do it. So given that, what are we going to do? Well, we can get more basis points effect the same kind of idea. If we do this forward guidance, um, and quantitative easing, which does different things, but one thing it definitely does is it proves your intent, right? Um, so all of these things give the feeling that you're going to have very low rates for a very long time, which could cause people to do different things that, that don't necessarily make the most sense. Um, the problem is there there's sort of two problems. One, which is more debatable long-term, is it could hurt your credibility. So... If you sometimes don't do what you say you're going to do after trying to make it sound really strongly that you do it, you fall into this trap of like, um, you can, if you have a great reputation, you can fool everyone one time, right? So if you're going to 
be a sovereign country that defaults or something. It's great to run everything well for 200 years or something so everyone believes their AAA credit and then run things up in a huge way. You'll be able to run them up much bigger than anyone else has ever done it before because they have so much faith in you. But then it won't work a second time. You can only do this once, you know? And you can only do this once in terms of the what the Fed's doing. Memories will eventually fade, but people will remember that you said you were going to do this, and so it'll be less effective next time you try to do this. It's, it is perhaps less effective now. We don't know. But the market doesn't believe what the Fed is saying about interest rates. There's lots of reasons why they could believe that, but one of the reasons is that they may believe that the Fed forward guides and does this on purpose and that forward guidance is less and less um, convincing because they broke with it last time and because they don't know what the world will look like in the future, and so they'll pivot when they see things change that way, right? And they tried to do the same sort of thing with COVID, too. Um before, you know, in the 2010s they did this. And then with COVID, they kind of said that they would keep rates low for a long enough time when they were saying the transitory stuff. So it's a problem from those perspectives. But the other thing that's a problem from, which is perhaps bigger, is that if you make it seem like things are going to be very uh, stable for a long time in that people can build things into their models and everything, their predictions about the future, then you might not be getting accurate feedback from things that are happening in the market and stuff about the future. In effect, you, by promising a certain future, no longer gain information from other people about what the likely future behavior of them will be. And so there's no way for people to, there's no way to figure out how people will respond to 6% rates if you're at zero and you're saying that you're staying at zero. The only way to do it is either to go towards six or to tell people that you're going to enough to convince them that it's happening and to start to see that come through and how they'll respond. You can't survey them and ask them and whatever. They don't know how they'll respond. So you do fall into that problem. And so you probably have very bad information about what will happen. Um, and as a result, you can have things that, that don't go well that way. And uh, the truth is they don't care as much about blowing up a few banks as they do about inflation and unemployment right and so um you know that's it's evolved over time yeah do you think like from your um conversations with people does it seem to you like most people aren't factoring in how high a company's cost of capital now is when they have to roll over that debt i mean even in commercial real estate i'm hearing about companies that not only is your rate going up, but they're asking you to post more collateral. And if you don't have that money, then you're mm -hmm. in trouble. Um, you know, we talk about this time around in energy and oil prices, companies are more focused on capital allocation. Oil is at $90 a barrel. Let's say it goes to triple digits or more. Eventually, mm -hmm. there's going to be people that are going to want to drill into the ground. But their actual cost of capital to do that now is way higher right. so yeah. not only is supply super tight but the cost has gone up so much which only furthers the supply being tight because it's harder to bring on that uh to bring supply on because of money we were talking about that with home builders if a home builder mm -hmm. wants to go out and solve this inventory deficit you got to have a ton of money now and that money's a lot more expensive than what it was a few years ago yeah i think the so companies, 
some companies, right, can act as shock absorbers to a certain extent, especially if they're highly profitable. And that, or dampeners, well, what's really happening is that they are taking time to transmit stuff to you that doesn't happen instantaneously to their customers and things like that by absorbing it themselves to a point. But it doesn't mean that they'll keep it themselves. So in the case of banks, everyone got really worried about um, you know, like I would say, well, really what matters is next year, how much is going to reset, right? It, it, right? It, like if you're 75% in loans and 75% of those loans reset um, within a year, then a large portion of your balance sheet is going to reset next year. Let's not worry too much about this. You can take deposits up slowly, whatever. Um, the things with First Republic and all those, sometimes if you go out with you have a huge increase in your balance sheet, you go out and you buy things, you lock in that for a long time, that's potentially a problem. But for some of these other things, yeah, their net interest margin will go down to very little. And then it will get better. But what does that mean? Um, it means that they are taking time to transmit this to you. But now you're going to have to absorb those higher rates. And so all the things that you saw where you said, oh, well, banks are getting squeezed by this much in net interest margin, they're not keeping that. That's all going to squeeze their customers the next year or you know, longer, depending on how long it takes you on a particular loan to, to refinance these things. And uh, there's not much you can do. You're seeing this with housing, right? If you engage in a transaction that's, that's transformative, you're going to have to borrow at current rates, basically. So you can, I have a project going on and whatever, and this is what the terms were and whatever, and it's not going to reset for five years. As long as I don't do anything, I can keep doing that, right? But you try to cash out of your current house and get into something else, you're going to end up with a different loan. You try to sell one business off. Um, you try to do private equity things to do an LBO now. All these things are going to have new higher rates on them. And so it affects stuff. And people may be unrealistic about that, right? Um you may think that the house should be worth the same that it was before, but now there's different rates. You may think, I mean, I haven't seen people say multiples for, you know, a write-up that's saying here's what things would go private at and everything has come down by a huge amount, but it should be different because the rates are so different, right? Um, Imagine being in other parts of the world where they don't even have a 30-year fixed mortgage. <laughs> that's an American thing. I mean, that'd be kind of scary if rates go from record lows to very high. Yes, but on the other hand, it transmits it very quickly and you get feedback right away on what you're doing. The issue with the Fed and stuff is like, okay. Yeah, it does work. work. You're what? right. It does work. Yeah. Na it it now provides the stress. Yeah. yeah. And that is one of the things with, um, when we talk about how you have to do things with rates now versus 1980. Um, so we talk about Ally, right? Car loans. Uh, the average car loan in 1980 was extremely short. So the effect can't be exactly the same. Um, if you raise rates now, it has to have less effect than it did then on the car market, um, you would think. I mean, CarMart, let's take the super subprime type things like CarMart and stuff. I think it's, last 40 years has probably extended the duration. Uh, I mean, the loan term is probably four times as long, right? So when the buy here pay here um industry started and stuff it probably was like nine month loan or something it was very short i mean 10 months maybe and now karma shorter than some others but it's 40 months or something so yeah it's probably increased four times so it's a much longer loan um it's extended a little bit more a little bit in prime things but less um 
so you you have the feedback on that differently. Um, it's interesting because like the government, in terms of its the federal government in the United States, will have the effects of inflate of um, interest rate hikes on it felt as faster faster than some kind of junky companies. Because if you look at the duration of what they have out and stuff, um, in just a matter of a few years, there's so much of their um, debt would be at higher levels, you know, uh, because so much of it is short term. Um, there's a lot of demand for short term stuff. Uh, so there's other companies where they've, you know, borrowed for long periods of time. It's, it's helpful if you've done that ahead of time. Um, but then next time that you need to redo stuff, it'll have to be at the higher rate. The thing is whether it, whether you figured it out whether you're reacting to it now or not. So First Republic wasn't reacting to it then. They tried to do the CD thing and stuff and say, let's time this and let's figure out how we can do this where we don't adjust. They never said, how do we run the bank with uh, Fed funds permanently at 5%. They said, how do we get through enough months that they'll cut the rates down and everything? Um, For some other banks, I don't know that it matters as much because once the rates stop... For, for a lot of banks, it doesn't really matter what the level of rates are as long as they, they stop raising them. Um, it's the speed and the trajectory of it and stuff. So, um, But, you know, there is a faster than I would have ever thought. I wouldn't have done that. So, I mean, that's one reason why you don't go that low or move that. I say, would I you mean, have kept them that low for that long? No, because yeah. you might have to do this. That's why you don't do it. That's why you don't do the transitory thing. I mean, we've talked about this. If you look at long-term history and stuff, Everyone thinks we're getting a soft landing now, but there are a few things that are highly negative. Um, money supply growth might be getting close to nothing, and that's an improvement over what it was before. Um, normally, the two rules, right, if you're looking at the entire history of like financial markets and stuff, is uh, don't ever contract your money supply. And certainly don't sharply contract it in, in a short period of time. That, that would be disastrous. Um, as one of the highest risks things you can do, and don't invert your curve, right? And they've done both of those things, and those things are often associated with each other. But um, would you have had to do that if you hadn't had all the forward guidance and you hadn't said it was transitory for as long as you did and all of that? But it, I guess the thing is I'm less pessimistic and ha- I think have been on it for bank survival and stuff um for the last six months or whatever four months um but the uh but i'm also not i've never thought it would be contained to banking this isn't a bank problem it's not like banks have to deal with this and you don't if they raise rates and stuff ultimately banks absorb the increase or the decrease and so that's where they talk about their whole beta thing everything but that's just the the moving from one to the other, right? That's all that's happening. Just like a company has inventory on hand, right? And some some of them have the inventory, like, uh, what is it, MotorPoint or something in the UK, lost a lot of money and stuff. But if you have a lot of used car inventory and it comes down, you lose a lot of money. If you were like Friedman in the US, you had a lot of steel inventory on hand when steel spiked, you make a lot of money. Banks are sort of like that. They had a lot of overpriced, is the way to think about it, loans and securities and stuff on their books. Suddenly that toppled, that just, you know, huge uh, decline in pricing, basically, you know, huge increase in rates. But long term, that's not their problem. That's, you know, that's the customer's problem. Like, um, we're not going to keep 
they're not going to keep behaving as if it has a you know if the if their costs change then they pass those costs on to you only they're only in check to the extent that there's rivalry between them to stop them from doing that um so i mean i think the bigger thing for banks that i've worried about for specific banks is that we have this big increase in rates and stuff but that also can really slow down demand for loans they'd really like to make new loans at higher rates and they all have we're going to get out there and make loans to put on loans at these higher rates and i'm depending on the bank somewhat skeptical that they're going to be able to do that because they're going to have things still coming off and stuff and so like they could be very very flat on that where they hope to be higher some are higher i mean like uh we talked about frost and stuff frost deposits down loans up like there's a lot of cni ones that are that way which is nice for the um interest margin and stuff though it you know it's not good for the that people get worried about the deposits being down but um there's others where that's not the case where it's very hard for them to make new loans um so i mean we've seen it just like kills activity in some things but the offset to that is uh when we're talking economically about all this that you worry about is we don't know how much of that had a really big when they aggregate a lot of this data a lot of this may have had really big impact on a few things already and that could start to turn which is where we talk about like the um the soft landing thing the problem with the soft landing idea is whenever some people say we're having a soft landing what they mean is whatever they were fearing before is now not less likely so they thought inflation was coming in too strong now it's not so now they think soft landing they're not thinking oh recession or they're thinking recession and then things are coming in pretty good so they think, no, it's a soft landing when it could be you're overshooting again and it's inflation. Um, and the reason for that is like housing activity went to like nothing. Like home builders are making a lot of money. So people in the stock market might not realize this going, oh, housing's doing great. There's not a lot of housing activity going on. Um, cars, yeah, the prices were up. And so we sold lots of things, but we didn't produce a lot more. We didn't sell a lot more cars during all this stuff. Um and then we talked about Dollar General and all those, Dollar General, Walmart, all those. They're clear that like stuff associated with housing, your backyard stuff, um, you know, any of that stuff that's interest rate sensitive, that's a complementary good to that has been bad. So eventually some of that stuff might come back. Like, you know, we're hitting our targets right now pretty much. Like things are coming down to where you would hope it would be, but they're doing it with no activity in some stuff, you know? So... um and that's, you know, the what we're saying about the information thing, right? Like, the information they're giving you is that people aren't willing to sell their home and buy another house because they don't want to take on a new mortgage. So they might adjust to it eventually, but either prices will come down or rates will come down or activity will be lower than people expect. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the Both the Bus on the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the first time you're joining us. Be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us here today. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrewredfocuscompounding.com. And uh, of course, if you have a question that you would like for us to pull on the podcast to turn into a topic, you can email that to me at andrewredfocuscompounding.com. Thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.